Well, firstly, a warm welcome if you are visiting today. Hi, Nikita's friends. How are you? <laughs> it's good to see you. Uh, it's my privilege to unpack what we have before us uh, this evening. My hope and prayer is that uh, for all of us here tonight, uh, we perhaps would see something new uh, from the text that we hadn't previously seen. Uh, that is to look into the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus from Matthew's gospel and that this would change our lives in some way or other. Now, if you're not familiar with how things work in our church, uh, we sing, we pray to God, we hear the word of God spoken, uh, and then we have it explained, and hopefully uh, explained in ways that we can understand, but more importantly, ways that reflect what the original authors had in mind so we can apply what they've said to our lives today. So in this, we, we don't want to make stuff up as we read along. Uh, I don't want to tell you what your itching ears are burning to hear. I'm not going to tell you that you're going to be rich or have a good, comfortable life or have a life that's free from suffering or give any form of flattery like that. Uh, rather, I want you to be encouraged by the truth. And sometimes it's the hard-hitting truth that we find in the Scriptures. And in this case, it's the truth of a man whose teachings not only live on, but he lives on himself. The truth of a man who is still alive today. And as we open up, uh, we're going to start at point one on the outlines. If you came in through one of these entrances, there are paper outlines there. Uh, I won't make you feel too awkward if you get up right now and go grab one because it has the Bible text on it and the points we're going to follow through with as well. Uh, But we're going to begin at point one. Jesus' teachings live on, but so does Jesus himself. Now, it's very common uh, when someone dies, maybe a friend or a loved one or even a famous person, for us to attribute to them some kind of immortality, right? Whether it's the hope that they're looking down at us from heaven or from the stars or somehow guiding us in the background of our lives, we naturally have this deep desire to see them active in the world or in our lives somehow. I suspect at the very least we might say something like, they're in a better place right now. Because the thought of anything else, the thought after death of staring into this abyss of nothingness, well, let's face it, it terrifies us. And so we deny the absence of someone who's died and we build a philosophy that claims that they're still around doing something perhaps in the background of the universe. Now, this argument, uh, believe it or not, has been used against the early Christians Uh, people said that the disciples were so desperate for their saviour to live on that they became delusional, that they they lost their minds. And so they invented the resurrection. They kind of made it, stitched it all together and became convinced of this lie. Because let's face it, Jesus had a massive influence over the lives of his disciples. These disciples had given up everything to follow him. All their eggs were in the one basket. And in an instant, he's gone. But more than this, even rationally thinking, dead people just, they don't become alive. It's just not the way the world works. At least that's not what the scientific community will tell you, and I think that's not what most rational people would tell you either. I mean, we don't have records of actual zombie apocalypses happening. Uh, You only find those in the computer games and in Hollywood. Uh, We don't have records of people being clinically dead for days at a time, suddenly waking up completely unharmed. These kinds of things just don't happen. And yet, 
This is exactly what Matthew claims happened to Jesus, that he rose physically. He rose corporally, which which means with a body, with, with a mind, with his spirit. And this is an interesting claim because this kind of thing just doesn't happen in the normal world. But unlike the the wishful thinking that he rose in the minds of the disciples and he's looking down at them from above, Matthew goes even further and claims that Jesus was actually raised physically. He claims with full conviction that his whole self, body and all, was raised from the dead. And then he backs this up in the text we've had read for us uh, with little proofs here and there. So in the text, uh, we're told twice that Jesus has risen once in verse 6 and once in verse 7. And the latter of these is the angel saying, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. Now, these little geographic references are kind of important because the angel doesn't say, oh, he's just rose as a ghost or he's just risen in our minds. You know, he's, he's here today with us somehow. No, he's risen from the dead More than this, he's physically here today going ahead of you to Galilee. He's almost saying that Jesus has had his morning cornflakes, he's thrown on his Sunday joggers, and he's running the local Israeli park run off to Galilee. But Matthew, he doesn't stop there. See, after the angel tells these women that Jesus is going ahead of them, we read in verses 8 and 9. If you have your pamphlet, by the way, the verses are the little numbers, and we're about halfway down the page here. In verses 8 and 9, we read that these women hurried away from the tomb, and then in verse 9, they suddenly meet Jesus. They encounter him in real life. In fact, I think they're running. They must have had their cornflakes as well. And Jesus greets them, but what he says is what I want to focus on here. He greets them with probably the most underwhelming expression of someone who was dead and has now come back to life. He doesn't go, ta-da, or... What I would do is, boo, (laughs) I'm back. He doesn't do anything to that effect. In fact, some of your translations uh, might even say he says, all hail, or some kind of really grandiose, over-the-top greeting. But literally, the first thing Jesus says to these women after rising from the dead and crossing their paths is, hi. Hi. (laughs) Basically, it's me. (laughs) Hello. Hello. There couldn't be a more earthy greeting than this. The first words of the risen Lord is, Hi, greetings. How are you doing? Now, this might come across to many of us as a huge understatement, and yet if you heard my talk on the temptations back in chapter 4, you'd know by now that in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tends to go for the ordinary. He doesn't go for the spectacular quite often, but rather the earthy, the real human This high is so profound that I think it almost tells us enough about the risen Jesus. That is, it tells us that after his resurrection, Jesus might be much, much more. I mean, he did inherit a resurrected body, which does some pretty amazing things in John, appearing in rooms with locked doors and things like that. But he's also nothing less than the real human being he was before his death as well. In other words, he's not a ghost. He's not a figment of their imagination. He's not like a combined delusion in their minds. He's real. And finally, Matthew 
uh, provides a little proof for this in terms of the women by them falling on his feet and grabbing them. In verse 9, they fall down and they worship him, and the text tells us they grab his feet, which is something you can't do with somebody who's not there. So we know that Matthew is fully convinced of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. But the question for many people, Christians and non-Christian alike, is, well, that's all good and well back then for Matthew and for the women to see it, but is it true? Is there any proof of this? Can, Can I actually put my eggs in any basket here? How do we know this is true? Is this even plausible to consider that someone could raise from the dead? Are there any proofs whatsoever? And this brings us to the next point on the outline. Uh, Jesus' bodily resurrection is a historical fact. Now, when I was uh, in university, one of the classic uh, arguments against Christianity went something like this. They claimed that to believe in the existence of God was so outlandish, it required so much faith, there was no evidence for it whatsoever, that it was almost the same thing as believing that there was this cosmic teapot, right? a teapot floating out in space, one that not the Hubble, the Hubble couldn't detect, no other human radars or anything could detect, or the James Webb, if you want to get really up to date, none of these things could detect, but it's definitely there, right? And I'd go, how ridiculous, there's, there's no teapot floating out in space, and they would go, Gotcha, because it takes just as much faith to believe that as it does to believe in your God. Now, the one little irony of this is that since my uni days, a British astronaut did, in fact, manage to smuggle a teapot onto the International Space Station. And so there's a little bit of a vindication there where I kind of go, checkmate, all my friends. But in all seriousness, the point they're trying to make is that Christianity doesn't have any root in history or science. It's all a fable. It's this kind of political thing made up to control the masses or whatever other theory you want to throw in there. But the problem with this is that it's completely untrue when it comes to the resurrection. In fact, one of the things that greatly separates Christianity from all other religions is that when it comes to the resurrection... Christianity puts its head on the chopping block of historical scrutiny, particularly around the the issue of the empty tomb. You see, the gospel in this regard actually invites historic inquiry. In fact, you could argue that it invites scientific inquiry with the women in this passage because the angel says, come and see, use your senses, feel, see, hear, listen. What do you see? How do you make sense of what's going on here? And so with this, I want to take this forward to today, and I want to look very briefly at two historical facts from Matthew's account of the resurrection in order to demonstrate that this still applies today, that, that God invites us in to, and gives us room to investigate and to see, is this really true? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Now, the first historical fact uh, concerns the women being the first to discover the empty tomb. And now this, it might come across as really insensitive and really politically incorrect, but it's true. In the first century, the testimony of women wasn't accepted in any Jewish court of law. In fact, one Jewish historian, Josephus, he was born around 37 AD, which was a few years after all these events took place. Uh, He wrote this about women. He said, from women, let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and temerity of their sex. 
It's pretty offensive, isn't it? Right? In this day and age, looking back, we go, wow, that's, that's really outlandish, really politically incorrect. But whether you agree with it or not isn't the point. Okay? The point is that in this day and age, this is exactly what was the case. A woman's testimony was not accepted in any Jewish courts of law. Right? So we just have to accept this as a fact. Basically, their testimony was useless. But what this means, this is the really important bit, what this means for this historical account of the resurrection is huge. You see, Matthew wasn't trying to fabricate or manufacture the resurrection. And if he was, the the last thing he would do is record women being the first witnesses to the resurrection and the empty tomb. Why is this? Because from what we've heard, their testimony would have held no water. Matthew's argument, it would have been dead on arrival. No one would have believed his account of the events. And so there goes all credibility to the resurrection. There's no way he would have recorded women as the first witnesses to the empty tomb unless it was true. If you're going to invent a story to convince people that Jesus was alive, in other words, this wasn't the way to do it. There's no way you would have written it like this. And yet this is exactly what Matthew does. And so I think it's a safe bet to conclude one of two things. Either he's terrible at concocting conspiracy theories and doesn't know the first thing about how to do it, or he's telling the truth. This is actually what happened. Now, the second thing I want to notice about the resurrection being a historical fact surrounds the the testimony of the guards that we have here in Matthew 28. They give an account, we're told, of all the things that went on, and presumably this was an honest account. They probably recalled this cosmic being coming and moving the stone, the earthquake, them all collapsing like dead men. would have been pretty terrifying if you ask me. They report all of this, and then they're told to go and lie about it in verse 13, to say that the disciples came during the night and they stole him away while we were sleeping. Now, to understand the absurdity of the claim, you have to appreciate a few things here. First, the question has to be asked, how do they know that the disciples stole the body while they were asleep? I mean, can you imagine in a courtroom today a witness going, yeah, this guy's definitely guilty. You know, I, I mean, I fell asleep and I didn't see or hear anything, but, but he definitely did it. I think I would hazard a guess that that would have very little evidential power in a court today. But let's just say it did happen this way. Right? Let's say they, they did fall asleep and somehow the disciples came and did it. If there was a shred of evidence that this was true, even a modicum of evidence then the Jewish leaders would have wasted no time in going and prosecuting these disciples as quickly and as harshly as they could. But we don't have any evidence of that. Secondly, the Roman guards, they were the best of the best. Of the best. And just just keep rolling on with that. And part of this is because of the history of Roman discipline for those who left their positions or, for example, fell asleep on duty anyone who may have disobeyed orders one way or another. So, for example, uh, one such a way that a guard was put to death, and uh, this is crazy, is they would be stripped of their clothes, dump them all in a pile, they'd light, light a fire from their clothes, and then they'd be burnt alive from the fire, started with their own clothes. Unbelievably scary. So you can almost guess that there would be no way that these guys were asleep on the job. There's no way that they're being 
fooled somehow by the disciples. In fact, one writer states about these people that that fear of punishment among the Roman guards produced flawless attention to watchers. These guards watching the tomb of Jesus, they would have known exactly what was going on and they would have done anything to anyone for, for tampering with it. They would have done all they could to prevent anything from happening. Yet despite this, the curious thing is historically the tomb that day was found empty. The seal undoubtedly broken, the stone rolled away from the entrance. And the amazing thing with this is that you'd be hard-pressed to find a historian, secular or Christian, regardless, who denies this fact to this day. The tomb was absolutely empty. Uh, One historian, he states that the claim of the resurrection couldn't have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day or even a single hour if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. And herein lies the biggest problem for these guards. You see, there was undeniable proof of their incompetence and it lay out there in the form of an empty tomb. And so they could either have the empty tomb discovered and be severely disciplined, perhaps even put to death for failing at their watch, or... They could lie about it, like they're told to do here, say they were asleep on the job, garner a large sum of money while doing it, and have the slim hope that if this did reach Pilate's ears, the governor at the time, presumably he could also be bought off by the Jewish uh, leaders. In other words, the tomb was empty, right? There was a smoking gun of evidence out there which pointed to Jesus' resurrection. And so to save their own skin, these guards... They can't deny the emptiness of the tomb, so they're reduced to hindering belief in the resurrection. It's the best they can do. Now, all of this has been this category of Christian thinking called apologetics. So it's a big word. Feel free to come ask me about it afterwards if you want to know more, uh, because there is a lot that surrounds the empty tomb. We don't have time to go through it all here. But what I want to encourage you to do is investigate this. Um, especially if you're a sceptic or if you're a Christian wanting to really know the nuts and bolts of what happened that day. In fact, this is God's gift to you because the faith of every Christian on the planet rides on this. It rests on the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection. You see, we believe that it occurred in real space-time history. It's not a myth. It's not made up. Which means that unlike any other religion, this one can be disproved. And so you're free. In fact, I would encourage you to take a swing at the core of our faith because if you find the bones of Jesus and parade them around like a house of cards, the faith of two billion people around the world evaporates. But I suspect, like many, if you give it a good and an honest crack, you'll find that it takes more faith to believe any of the alternatives that it actually takes more faith to believe that it didn't happen. It takes more faith to believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And feel free to come and talk to me or Reich or anyone else um, afterwards about this um, because this is a lot of good stuff, a lot of ways to fuel discussion uh, and to bolster the faith and to be able to defend it even publicly as well. Um, What I want to do now is shift gears, though. Uh, We're going to move on to our third point and we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at the implications of the resurrection. And so this brings us to point three, 
Uh, Jesus' bodily resurrection is a historical fact. Therefore, don't be afraid. Go and tell. Now, I'm a fan of war movies uh, or TV shows. Band of Brothers, the HBO series, is probably the best thing ever produced onto television. But one of the more recent uh, cinematic masterpieces was a movie called 1917. Some of you may have seen it. Some, some are a bit obsessed with it. It's a movie about uh, the German army planning an ambush against the British in World War I. However, the plot goes that those that were on the British front lines preparing for an advancement had no idea of the trap. They didn't realise they were walking in to something else. With telephone lines cut and no other way of communicating the dire consequences of advancing into this ambush, two young soldiers that were tasked with the important message to carry to these people on foot to cancel the advancement a message to call off this scheduled advancement and potentially save 1,600 lives at the same time, including the brother of one of the messengers. These men, they they know the importance of the message they hold. They know it's a matter of life and death, literally. Well, take this idea, right, crank it up to 11, up the stakes all the way into the heavens and consider the internal infinite consequences of Jesus' resurrection and the message that it carries. It helps us understand why we're not to be afraid, but to go and tell. But unlike in 1917, this this news, while it does remain a warning, it's also absolutely amazing news. Because you see, death is now defeated. Death, ironically, has died. Kind of crazy to think about that. It kind of sends your head into spins there. Death has died. It no longer has mastery over Jesus, and it no longer has mastery over us who are in union with Jesus, who are united to Jesus in his death and resurrection. And more than this, you see, for Christians, death is now the doorway to life. It's the entrance into paradise. But this is only possible because the barrier between us and God Our sin and our rebellion, our rejection of him, was taken away on the cross. It was placed upon the shoulders of Jesus, and then his righteousness, his perfect A-plus report card, was then given to us. So we can then front up to God with full confidence that we will be accepted and enjoy him forever. We can enjoy being in the presence of the source of all goodness, the source of all love and forgiveness, grace and mercy. But contrasting this, to ignore the the messenger's important news is to end up facing the full wrath of God. You see, there are only two ways to live. You're either with God through faith in Jesus or you're not. It's as simple as that. There's no in-between. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. Outside of him, there is nothing else. And Reich, last week, he took us through some of the the terrifying implications of rejecting this gift, of rejecting Jesus. He took us through the implications of the reality of hell. But this is where Jesus' words to the women in verse 10 of our passage today are all the more important. So if you have your Bibles, keep them open and read with me. Verse 10. He says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go into Galilee. 
There they will see me. And this is fantastic news. And so to finish up, I want to explain why. Right? I want to highlight two things about what Jesus says here uh, with regard to the message. So firstly, if you're a Christian here today, uh, like the two boys in the film 1917, we must go and tell this fantastic news of Jesus' death and resurrection for our sin and his glory. We're not given, in other words, the good news to kind of cherish it in our heart alone, to kind of close the doors. We're not to just sit here and enjoy it in secret or in the comfort of our own lives. And sadly, I, I think this mentality has invaded a lot of Christians, particularly here in Australia. And honestly, I think we need a good rebuke for this because we've swallowed the postmodern pill that, well, that's true for you and this is true for you and that's okay. And we live in this this culture now of offence, where we can't offend someone. We don't want to tread on their toes. And so we're not willing to share the gospel because it might offend somebody. And yet Christianity is the opposite of this. In fact, while Christians, we are called to be tolerant in many ways, the message of the gospel is entirely intolerant. And this is part of the reason it is so offensive today. And so if we believe that we must just keep it to ourselves, it actually destroys evangelism. It destroys the impetus to go and tell. The problem is that there is one truth, and that is God's truth, which means we're commanded not to be afraid, pluck up the courage, and go quickly and tell people about him. People need to hear about Jesus. There's many reasons for this. It's not just to avoid hell or because of fear of death. It's not just because it's the only way to God, though all those things are absolutely paramount. We mustn't forget that. But it's also because he is a king which we can enjoy forever. Right? There is such great news in here for the individual that accepts Jesus. He is the source of true lasting enjoyment to the glory of God. Ultimate eternal happiness and freedom which the world is longing for and only gets tastes of this side of the resurrection is found in Jesus. So go and tell Secondly, if you're not a Christian, or perhaps you are but you're questioning at this stage, I want you to look closely at what Jesus calls his disciples in this passage. He says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. My brothers. Now, the reason this is significant is because right when Jesus needed the disciples most, they all abandoned him. He was arrested and they all ran off. The tails between their legs like cowardly little puppies. They'd failed Jesus. And as far as they're concerned, Jesus is now dead. They're lost. They have no idea what's going on or what to do from here. But look now what Jesus calls them. He doesn't say, go and tell those traitors to go into Galilee. I'm going to deal with them there. He doesn't say, go and tell those spineless, pathetic excuses for disciples. No, he says, go and tell my brothers. This is one of the warmest, most forgiving statements in the whole New Testament. It's almost worth highlighting, underlining, and knowing as best you can. Because forgiveness is preached by Jesus right here. And I want to say the offer, it still stands. If you're new to Kenmore Presbyterian or have been dragged along by some Easter tradition... Um, or whatever other reason you're here today, 
Please don't leave without considering the best offer you'll ever have in your life that is free and full forgiveness for keeping God at arm's length. The promise of eternal life in heaven. The promise to be with your maker, praising him with joy exceeding anything this world could offer. Think of the most amazing experience you can possibly have. Multiply that by infinity. And we have the added benefit as well is that we will inherit a new body which doesn't perish or die. And so this this Easter, not morning anymore, it's evening, but this Easter evening, when we consider the resurrection of Jesus, we also need to see it as the beginnings of a new creation. You see, Jesus' resurrection was the beginnings of how all things are going to end. We must consider the historical reality of the resurrection as well, as we've spoken about. And so I want to ask, if you're a skeptic or if you're doubting, I want to ask, what's holding you back this morning? Perhaps talk to someone about that. We'll give it some serious thought this evening. Don't come out of the sermon and walk away, box it back in its shoebox, put it back in the cupboard. Deal with it here and now. What is holding you back this morning? To my Christian brothers and sisters, I want to say this is fantastic news, the resurrection. It really is joyous. Uh, This is amazing news that we hold, and so we must go and tell We aren't to be afraid, but to go and tell the world about the resurrection of Jesus and its implications for everything. And with that, how about I pray we'll finish up this morning. Father God, our Lord, help us to open up our hearts and our minds. Lord, help us to consider the truth of the resurrection and its implications in our lives. Lord, wherever we're at this evening, please have spoken to us and continue to speak to us through your word. Lord, we pray that you'd meet us wherever we're at and that we would perhaps experience free and full forgiveness even for the first time today. And Lord, we pray this for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen.